and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, the greatest movie cars podcast as voted for by the two people that host it. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and as ever I'm with Martin Spain. Shall we just jump straight into some news? Because we have a, a piece of news to start with, which we need to do some research on this because we're never knowingly over-researched. But there is a 992 Carrera GTS that has sold at auction for $3.6 million. Which is a lot of money. So this is a car which we talked about a couple of episodes ago with a slightly tenuous link to the first Cars film. If you have seen the first Cars film, you will know that there is Sally Carrera, a 996 Carrera that runs a roadside inn in Radiator Springs. If you haven't seen the film, this is all going to sound very weird. However, in tribute to the 996 model year, Porsche and Pixar got together to produce a special one-off in many ways, 992, nearly said 996, 992 Carrera in, amongst other things, the same colour as the car from the Cars film. It has one-off wheels to match the, and I'm going to need your 996 knowledge here, the, is it reverse turbine wheels? These are the turbo, they're turbo hollow spokes, but they're a modern take on them where they are not as sort of rounded and formed looking. These are, they look a teeny bit like wheels off of an Audi TT, to be honest. They, they look at, there's a little bit of Audi about them yeah, in the five spoke yeah. nature of them. They're a nice modern take on a classic 996 era Porsche wheel. The hollow spokes that you got on the turbo and the Carrera 4S and the GT2. It's worth pointing out they are also a one-of-one one set yes, of wheels. Yes, if you curb them, you, are, so you, you the can't car- do anything with them. They do not make these wheels. And I was looking at them just now when, uh, you know, looking at the, the um, some of the press pieces on this sale and thinking, do I like them? Do I not? I'm not sure. They, they kind of work, <laughs> but the 992 body shell is a different kind of proportion and size Yes, all 911s look related, as many people have pointed out, but the wheels generally only suit the generation of car that they were launched with. See, all the people that put the turbo triple spokes from the 997 generation turbos onto 996 turbos, they look dreadful. Yep. Wheels should belong with the generation of car that they were launched with, preferably with the car that you could buy them on. If you start shifting them all around, they don't look good. And I was looking at this thinking, this does kind of look a teeny bit like a mishmash car. I appreciate the effort. They have matched the colour. Some of the press photos make the colour look a bit wrong, but they have tried. They have got the little pinstripe on the back, the tramp stamp. (laughs) I love that touch. I love it so much. You know, it's a nicely specced 992 Carrera GTS. Is it $3.6 million worth as a car? No. As something that is being auctioned off to raise money for charity? Sure, absolutely. Um... Friend of the podcast, Matt Lang, as uh, uh, our financial advisor, did wonder whether or not this was something that could be written off against tax by the very rich winner of the auction. And um, I can see that, yes, if you made a indirect donation, that that might be seen as, yeah, sure, you can write all that off against tax and you get a Carrera GTS for nothing. I don't know whether or not this is going to be driven by the the person. Other than, you know, a nice paint job, some fancy wheels and a little bit of pinstriping, I think the rest of it's completely stock. It pretty much is. It's worth saying as well, just to add some provenance, this was a collaboration between Porsche Design and uh, Pixar, including our previous intermission guest, Jay Ward, so it, there's absolute provenance. I think there is there is some other stuff that comes with the car. So you do get a set of standard wheels. So you don't always have to drive around on the one of one set. The thing you do get that I like, where that little dial is on modern Porsches where you can select the mode, this yes. one's just got a label that says yep. ka-chow, which I think is probably <laughs> the best thing about the whole car and might even be worth the 3.5 of the 3.6 million on its own. <laughs> It is a great thing, and I'm I'm glad it exists. I I honestly thought it was going to go for like two hundred and fifty grand or something, and when I saw the results, everything's going for crazy money in the US though now. Everything is going for absolutely bonkers money. Any car, if you've just got some rust that rolls along on four wheels, it would appear that you could probably get <laughs> three or four grand more than than anyone would consider sensible. So I think Matt also raised the question: 
is this the most expensive Porsche 911 that's ever sold at auction? And I'm probably sure it isn't, but I had a look, and even five years ago, like Steve McQueen 911s were going for one and a half, two million dollars. I'm sure somewhere somebody's bought a, a famous car for more than that. And if they haven't, then this record will not last for very long in the kind of superheated collector's market that, that's going on right now. But yes, Sally Carrera has sold. Um, let's move on to some possibly slightly more exciting news. The Grand Tour dropped trailer for their new Norway special that is due out very shortly in like three weeks. It's called a Scandi Flick, which is a very fantastic title. And I thoroughly enjoyed watching this. This looks really cool. They've got a bunch of um, rally cars, uh, particularly James May in what looks like an Evo 7 or an Evo 8. I can't tell the difference. Evo mm. fans tell me why I'm wrong. And Jeremy Clarkson appears to have got like an Audi A4 in in the kind of stubborn Clarkson way of going, it's an Audi Quattro and Audi won rallies in 1982. Therefore, you know, <laughs> I've got an Audi Quattro. It's the best. And I, you know, there's going to be some... You're you're going to get what you see here. If if you don't like what the three of them are doing with the Grand Tour now, you will not like this special. Don't watch it. <laughs> For everyone that's going to watch the trailer and go, oh, I don't like it, and then they're going to watch the actual special, and then they're going to come on social media and go, oh, I didn't like it. It's not as good as what they used to do. They've gone rubbish now. Just don't watch it. Just don't watch it. I liked it because it's what? stupid and it's... Why don't they feature real it's cars? stupid and it's comforting and... You know, there is a limited shelf life for them doing this kind of thing. So if you enjoy it, enjoy it while it lasts. But yes, I I quite enjoyed this. A few of my friends have said, this looks cack, and I beg to differ. But, you know, your mileage may vary. What did you think? You had to ask for that, just as I raised a glass to my lips. Um, I hugely enjoyed it, hugely excited. There is a scene in it, and this is not a spoiler, because I think Andy Willman shared some of this on some social media thingy. And the Grand Tour Nation account on, again, all the socials, I think pick it up. If, if you ever want to know what's going on with the Grand Tour, Grand Tour Nation is a great resource. James May did crash the Evo in the tunnel in the trailer. And there is the briefest flash of the Evo going sideways into a wall at speed. Oh, yes, I saw that and thought, that's got to hurt. There, there's some stills flying around the internet of the inside of the car when that happened. So yes, whether this sort of meets up with the, um, was it the Iraq um, special where James May fell off a horse? Uh, what was and that one called? One, um, it was the one with the baby. Jesus. Yes, it was. Where they were in three little, they were on uh, three little um, open top sports cars. I forget which thing that Middle East special. Yes. That's the one. Where James May falls over and knocks his head very painfully. So September the 16th, we'll see the Scandi flick. I'm going to watch it on the night it comes out because that's the great thing to do on a Friday night. Also, speaking of things coming out soon, you highlighted a tweet from Jensen Button about the upcoming Braun documentary coming soon. Yes, this was... Under, and we mentioned this in the last episode about the fact that Keanu Reeves was going to be directing a documentary about the 2009 F1 season and Braun's spectacular success across one year. Played one, won one, sold out to Merck and left. Uh, We thought this was going to be, yeah, that's going to turn up in 2022 at some point, but apparently not. It's going to be coming later this year. Uh, And Jensen tweeted out that he's... It's a four-part series, I think, and he's been doing some work for it. So I, yeah. I'm i more excited for this, especially now they've. it's not... I mean, they were always going to have to get Jensen involved in it. I'm interested to see if they get uh, Nick Fry and maybe some of the other people involved in Braun at that time. Um, I'm hopeful that they can get more than just the obvious players talking about it. I'd be fascinated to hear how some of the people in the team reacted to the fact that they were probably possibly going to lose their jobs and how that all went down um and then the whole fairy tale of it all and i'm i'm interested to see what pundits they get in for this what talking heads they have and how this is told um generally you know this this could be this could be a puff piece but i'm really hopeful that it's not it's four episodes so they've got a chance to dig into to it in some detail it's not like we're going to tell it in an hour so yeah hopeful but it's coming earlier than we thought i can't remember if there was a date on that um thing i sent you no so 
when we talked about it in the last episode, all the sources we could find said 2023. Jensen's tweet said coming soon to Disney Plus, um, which is a actually if I, I don't know if you're a Disney Plus subscriber, but they have a surprising amount of breadth of content. If you think it's all just going to be animated singing frogs and things, they have a lot of makings on this stuff, and plus they've got obviously a bunch of um, National Geographic things in there as well uh, i do have disney mm. plus yes so i will be watching this the second it comes out but uh like you say 2023 early 2023 would be nice you know what have something some counter programming to the inevitable drive to survive hype and oh, madness yes. i have been in touch with the disney plus press office to see if they are confirming a date i haven't heard anything yet but while looking for some other sources on on this, I found an article from Digital Spy that we'll link to in the show notes, recapping some of the other things that are going on. Some of this you will have heard before, but some of this was new to me. Lewis Hamilton is working on a documentary series for Apple. About what? I don't know. He's also teaming up with Brad Pitt for the movie set in the world of F1. We've talked about that before. Describing his key responsibilities as making sure that the cast and crew in the background is diverse and acting as a storyline consultant. Apparently, Lewis also turned down a role in Top Gun Maverick due to winning the F1 title that at the same time they were shooting. <laughs> Which is a, a, a lovely kind of sideways flex, isn't it? I, I was too busy to star in the most <laughs> awesome movie of 2022, possibly the most awesome movie of all time, because I was busy being awesome winning the 2020 World Championship. <laughs> Very much so. Meanwhile, Daniel Ricardo will be an exec producer on a half-hour fictional scripted series for Hulu, which he's compared to Ballers and Entourage, two series I've never watched. I don't think Entourage... Uh, is Entourage a bit marmite? It depends. Entourage is very much of its time. A uh, friend of the show, Jack Wood, turned me on to the series a while ago. I did watch the first four seasons of it. It's, uh, it's fun. It's silly. Uh, it's very much wish fulfillment. Um, it's sort of that kind of, you know, it's supposed to be very inside, inside baseball stuff, inside Hollywood. You've got real people like James Cameron turn up playing a, an exaggerated version of himself. And um, it's about a, a young actor and his entourage as they navigate the, the life living in Hollywood as he, you know, stars in movies, gets success, has failure, all that kind of thing. And he's got these kind of, he's got a brother and then some other friends who are his, his, his entourage that, go with him everywhere and you know hijinks ensue it's quite fun i did kind of get bored after about three series because it's all very much of a muchness um <laughs> i've never seen ballers although i understand it's kind of it's it's somewhat similar and it has dwayne johnson in it which is usually a mark of watchability if nothing else um i want to make some kind of mean joke about being fired when you don't want to be <laughs> in regard to Danny Ricciardo working on this project, but um, that might be too topical and I'm not clever enough to come up with it at five to nine on a Tuesday night. So let's <laughs> let's move on from that. Final item in the, uh, in the news is something from The Hit. So I, f I was turned on to this review of a documentary in The Guardian by one of the F1 journo corps who kind of tweets about it and never kind of did very much. This is a documentary that's been created revisiting the dirt track race where Tony Stewart and Kevin Ward Jr. had a collision on track. Kevin walked back down the track to remonstrate at Tony's car as he went past. But Tony, through circumstances, ended up hitting and killing Kevin with his open-wheel car. I must admit, it's been a long time since I've, I've, I've looked at this, but this, what this documentary tries to do is really go into forensically what happened with the data that's available on the night of the accident. The review talks about how they interviewed uh, Kevin's family at length. They talk about what, what they're going through. They talk about some of the things that happened after the event. So the fact that... Tony Stewart was sort of questioned and then released. He left uh, the the city or the state kind of under cover of darkness. Information from his data recorder, I think, was never recovered. It seems like a very interesting, very potentially emotional documentary, which 
the reviewer does rate highly, but unfortunately is not one that yet has any distribution. So it's going around doing some of the film festivals at the moment, but there is no way, sadly, for us to, to watch it. I'm trying to find out more. If I find out, I will let everybody know on a future episode but it it could be it could be quite an interesting uh, documentary as well because i just wonder what the the political and the public fallout of it might be if it does get a wide distribution on a on a netflix or on an amazon it sounds like hard viewing i've just read the, the guardian review and it does sound like this is going to be a tough watch and it seems like this is a Here's one side of the story, and it's the side that hasn't really been given its due. And so it is inevitably going to have some bias. But like you say, we haven't we're not able to watch it right now, so we can't really report back. But I may I may defer to you on watching this one. I'm not good at watching these kinds of documentaries. <laughs> Very quickly, what have we been watching since we last podded? Uh I have been watching some F1, obviously, because there's been a big autumn. Uh, sorry, there's been the big summer break where not much has been going on. Uh, I did watch the Belgian Grand Prix, which is super tedious. And pursuant to our discussion earlier on, I did turn it on five minutes before it started, and I did turn it off the second that Max Verstappen crossed the line. And that is the way I watch F1 at the moment. Uh, we're now into a triple header, so there's some more on this weekend and some more on next weekend, and I'm probably going to watch them all the same way until someone cuts Max Verstappen's legs off. <laughs> I've also been kind of digging through the World Endurance Championship archive on YouTube, where they are slowly but surely uploading full races um, from their past seasons. And they're, they're taking their good sweet time to upload the best one, which is Silverstone 2015, but they are starting to upload things like Fuji from 2015, which was you know very, very wet and very eventful. And there's a kind of joy in having that archived for free, a, a full race-length broadcast with the original broadcast team. I have no idea what the rights are like to clear for this, but it is very nice to be able to go back and look at some of the best endurance races in the world. Um, even now, you know, you've got good stuff coming up next year with Ferrari and Porsche and BMW and Peugeot all returning and Glickenhaus. Oh, yeah, all right, Glickenhaus. Um, all returning to the World Endurance Championship and specifically to Le Mans, but they are hobbled by cars that just aren't as good, as fast or as interesting and technologically advanced as the the hypercars from the LMP1 era, 2014 to 2017, were the best endurance cars ever made. Fight me, people who love the 956, the 962, the 917. You're all wrong. <laughs> this was the best era of sports car racing. Anyway, I've been watching a bunch of those um, on and off. I can feel the hatred from all of the people who are just like, well, I think you'll find that Group C racing, the Sauber C9, <laughs> or, you know, people going on about the 917 in the late 70s and so on and so on. For me, I enjoyed this far more because I lived through it and was able to go and see those cars in period competing. Anyway, the WEC channel, FIAWC, on YouTube is worth a look. Uh, it's not my channel of the week, but uh, I've been watching some races on there and thoroughly enjoying that, possibly more than the F1 at the moment because there's not really much of a competition going on other than seeing just how hilariously Ferrari can throw it away. What have you been watching? I will, I, as I've been bleating episode after episode... I will just say one quick thing about the F1 archive on a similar note to uh, what you were saying about WEC. I went back and I looked at some of the races from last year because in the UK, where Sky have the rights, the F1 app, as you can subscribe to it today for not a lot of money, only goes up to last year. So you can't see anything from this year at all. What you do get if you watch a race from 2022 and, uh, sorry, from 2021, possibly 2020 as well, is you get the full broadcast experience. So not only do you get the world feed, you also get Alex Brundle's pit lane channel and you get to see all the highlights and all the data and stuff. It's 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 brilliant that they can recreate that kind of for posterity. However, there is one thing I want to talk to you about when it comes to F1, because it was very, very notable to me when we got to Spa that quite a few of the more regular F1 pundits on Sky weren't there. And they'd obviously taken this as one of their holidays. And let's be honest, how many races have we got this year? Is it 20? Is it 20 races? 21 races? 21. It was meant to be 22, or possibly even 23. It, would have been, it was meant to be 23. Russia's out. 
China's out. So mm. it's only 21. Right. I believe next year is meant to be 24 or something insane like that. Jesus. Effectively, we've had, we've front-loaded a bunch, which Max Verstappen has won all of, and then we've got some more, which Max Verstappen is going to win all of, so place your bets now. But I think we've got like eight races, and you know there's a triple header now, and then there's some more, which Max Verstappen is going to win, and Christian Horner is going to be insufferable <laughs> on Drive to Survive. So realistically, actually don't watch it. Go and watch something else. Go and watch the Antiques Roadshow. Watch an old episode of Lovejoy or something comforting like Miss Marple oh, or, um, I don't know, Last of the Summer Wine. Last yes, of the Summer there Wine. You go. Sorry, hugely parochial UK TV references here. Go and watch something that, that means you need a nice hot cup of cocoa and a blanket in front of your telly because I guarantee you it will be more interesting <laughs> than watching the F1. And that's not just because we're sore about it, except it totally is. Um, let's, let's move on from what we've been watching because we haven't been watching a great deal. It's been August. It's been holiday time. People have been away. The sun has been baking the entire country. And so no energy for podcasting there. And I'm not sure I could have done another podcast in the heat of August. <laughs> but now we're back. It's nearly September. The uh, The sun has retreated a little bit. And we're continuing on with our Mission Impossible mission to review all the good Mission Impossible movies. We're going to look at Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation today. So that's MI4 and MI5. We talked about Mission Impossible 2 and 3 in the previous episode. Not a huge amount of car content there in 3, quite a lot in 2, although, you know, some also some silliness. Uh, and now we're going to look at where Mission Impossible kind of stepped it up and became one of the preeminent action franchises in modern cinema. This was all kicked off by Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which is directed by Brad Bird. And Chris has been watching all these for the first time, I should add. I've seen these loads. So yep. Chris is going to talk us through his thoughts on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. I'll give you a quick pricey of the plot. There's an IMF agent who gets killed right at the start, who's got some nuclear launch codes. And our favourite IMF agent, Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, is incarcerated in a Moscow prison to acquire some other source of information on someone who's going to be receiving these codes there's an amazing prison breakout sequence, which is very, very cool. He escapes and meets with the IMF secretary. The president apparently initiates a thing called Ghost Protocol, which disavows the IMF because secrets have got out, and then secretly orders um, Ethan Hunt to continue pursuing um, his man. And uh, you know, shit happens. They also get f they also get framed for blowing up the Kremlin. That's true. In the Mission Impossible universe, the Kremlin has been blown up has been levelled, which is a pretty big thing to do. But um, there you go. That kind of, that sets the scene for what's going on here. Um, and this is the kind of, this is the point where the MI franchise doubled down on doing insane stunts in camera and, and Tom Cruise kind of took the next step, becoming not just Tom Cruise the movie star, but Tom Cruise stuntman extraordinaire. So how did you find... <laughs> your your viewing of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Because this one has quite of a twisty plot um, compared to some of the, the later ones that are a bit more on rails. So it, it takes a while following it all along. In researching this, I found another podcast discussion on this, which described this as the moment that the, the Mission Impossible franchise kind of took a turn and really hit its stride. And I think it's... I think that's absolutely on the money. I think... Looking back, Mission Impossible Two, Mission Impossible Three are actually pretty rubbish. I don't know. I've got a t I've got a lot of time for Mission Impossible Three. Mission Impossible Two is very silly. Has that one kind of gloriously inventive yes. car chase, and the rest of it is absolute tosh. Masquerading as an early two thousands <laughs> action movie. MI Three, I think, is where they kind of dialed it back and basically breathed a bit of life into the franchise, and it made enough money for them to go, "Hey, we want to keep doing these," and then. Brad Bird, mm. previously of the Iron Giant and the Incredibles fame at Pixar, was brought on to direct his first live-action movie, and this is what resulted. So I think the first thing that I, I want to say about this is that you have to sort of understand, I think, where Mission Impossible comes into the world of that sort of film. Because I think particularly now, we're, we're in this kind of world where we've got Bourne on one end which is very gritty, very real, quite bleak in a lot of ways. And then you've got James Bond at the other end, which is James Bond. The Mission Impossible films, and these two in particular, 
and I've only seen up to up to these. I haven't seen um, Fallout. Fallout, the next yeah. one. They they occupy quite a kind of weird weird space because you've essentially got the globe trotting element of Bond. You've got a kind of an underground agency which always seems to be up against it which is always having to rough it which is always being kind of disavowed and is always kind of off the books so you've got that kind of that side of born and through the middle of it like a stick of rock you've got i don't want to say tongue-in-cheek because that because that kind of says that they're playing it up and that they're they're almost parodying it which they're not but it has a very mission impossible streak to it and what i mean by that is people are always running there is always a mission if you choose to accept it if there is a timer it will always stop at one second to go no matter what there will always be a point where they are absolutely up against it and you think this is it they're done for they can't possibly and then something happens and 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 off they go and i think if you approach it on that basis and maybe this was where i've been wrong up to this point is that it is fun. It, it is aware of what it is without being a parody, but also it doesn't tip too far the other way. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And they know that they are very, very much like a stunt franchise now. It's kind of like the Fast and the Furious. It's like they're not pretending to be a car film. They are now a heist film. And Mission Impossible is absolutely, you know, here are big set pieces. There were a couple of things with Ghost Protocol that I really liked. So there is a car chase in it, which happens in the middle of a sandstorm and has this beautiful thing of of people and cars just sort of disappearing off into the sand. It reminded me in a way... Have you ever seen Deadpool? Yes. You know the opening of Deadpool and that like, that first scene? It's where the camera sort of flies through this car that is like mid-crash. Yes. Um, there was a bit of that to it. I mean, it obviously didn't have the snark of Deadpool, but it had that kind of... It had a bit of that aesthetic to it. Also, we have to talk about the BMW i8 concept, which had, aside from me going... That is the concept, isn't it? Because it looked, it wasn't quite a production car, it looked different. It did have the Minority Report windscreen, which also doubled as a wave your hands at it touch screen so you could bring up a schematic of the, the building that you're about to crash into and then whisk it off the screen and all that sort of thing. Somehow BMW's gesture control interface took came on in leaps and bounds there, where <laughs> if, if anyone's driven a car that does have gesture control, you just end up waving your hand, flapping it at the centre console in the hope that something will happen. <laughs> and then when nothing happens, you get really cross, give it the finger and the volume doubles. <laughs> I do enjoy watching these kind of futuristic interfaces because they all look so cool and they're also utterly impractical. But yes, seeing an <laughs> i8, which is you know such a futuristic looking car, it should be in all, all future movies should be using an i8 as the basis of their, you know, grizzled cop driving around in a rainy neon soaked LA noir night. Just put them in an i8, you know, line it with a bit of neon underneath, job yep. done. You didn't need Sid Mead in 1982 doing all that stuff for Blade Running. Now you've just got the BMW i8. It was really nice to see that there. I know you're right about that car chase where it is kind of things looming out. And I can't imagine how difficult that was to shoot. I don't know how much of the sand was real versus digital, but a lot of it looks convincing and it kind of, it does that like sand swooping along the, the road kind of thing. Uh, I can't really describe it, but you, you know what I mean when it's been caught by the wind and it's it's done in waves and eddies and and it's that's a really interesting way of doing it. And then right at the very end, there's a scene in one of those automatic car parks where cars are being thrown around at people, <laughs> which was just the most bonkers which thing. Which I actually thought was really yeah, see, clever. I mean, it's such an inventive I, I, place to stage a showdown. Spoiler alert, by the way, they get to the end and people throw cars at them. Well. I don't think it's a spoiler. Actually, I think you could watch it out of context if you just if if you only had like ten minutes and you said I'm just going to watch that scene, you will know instantly it's Tom Cruise and the baddie, and they're in a automated parking garage. But what I think is really interesting as a setting is well, two things. One is the choreography of it, the fact that you can see something's coming, you can see a car is moving slowly. And that's going to... And now, like, Ethan Hunt can't quite reach the thing until the car moves enough, but then will the baddie realise? And then they knock up the briefcase off, and then you've got another thing coming up, so can they get round to that? 
I think the kind of the, the, the climax of it, I think, has a sort of brutality to it and really strikes me as one of those things where if you were in that situation and you just needed to get the result, that's what you would do. It also shows, and this is this is my thing, this is just my sort of, my twitch when it comes to these films. This is the first film that BMW are clearly the sponsor of Tom Cruise's cars. So if Tom is going to get into a car, it will be a BMW. So in this parking garage, they've done that thing, you know that they do in car insurance adverts, where they take like a Toyota Avensis, yeah. but they take the Toyota badges off and they anonymize the grill and they take off any markings that make it look specifically like that car. There's a lot of cars in this parking garage that just look like a bit like a car that you kind of almost know. And then Tom Cruise jumps into a one series and he presses the start button on what's clearly a one series and it's got all the badges and everything on it. I have to say, I... I Enjoyed this more than I thought I was going to. I think the car scenes start to sort of point towards where we're going. Does is this the one with the motorbike chase, or is the is that um, Rogue Nation? No, that's that's Rogue Nation. We'll get we'll get to Rogue Nation because this one does not have. They're kind of building up to it, really. So there was a, there's a little bit of vehicular mayhem in Mission Impossible Three. There's a little bit more in Mission Impossible Four. But as we said earlier, this was directed by Brad Bird as his first live action movie, and you know he knocked it out of the park as your first go round. Yeah, this has got all the invention of The Incredibles, but with real live humans. You know. You you can only look at that ending and and you can see the kind of crazed joy he takes in sort of putting these superheroic scenarios together. And it made an enormous amount of money for a Mission Impossible movie comeback. I mean, it was budget was something like 100, uh, 140 million, which is an enormous amount of money. But then it made nearly 700 million back. Wow. Which is a good rate of return, even after you put in all of the usual Hollywood dodgy accounting and expenses and so on. It's still more than, (laughs) probably more than doubled the money put in. And most importantly, I think, for the Mission Impossible franchise was that Christopher McQuarrie, who would go on to direct Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible Fallout, and the upcoming Mission Impossibles 7 and 8. I've forgotten the titles of them for now. I'll look them up in a minute. Um, He came in to do an uncredited rewrite of the screenplay. He was brought in in the middle of the shoot to kind of do a pass to work out how to clarify the story, how to make things a bit simpler. Um, and he he has a, there's a quote on the, the Wikipedia page to say that he'd he learned an awful lot about production on a Mission Impossible movie where you kind of build the movie around the sequences that they've planned and built sets for, and everything that gets you from one one sort of action sequence to uh, to another is still a bit fluid and can be played with. You have the basic action beats and the idea and the overarching story, but you can you can manipulate that to make it you know more complicated or simpler, and and that's something that they've done for Rogue Nation and for Fallout, uh, Christopher McQuarrie is a commensurate talker. If you are interested in hearing him talk about the making of these movies after we've done these reviews, and if you haven't seen them and you go and watch them, Empire Magazine have done two three-hour podcasts with him talking about the wow. making of both both Rogue Nation and Fallout. Uh, you might need to subscribe to their spoiler special podcasts. It's something like £3 a month. They're absolutely worth it if you like movies um but yeah he he is he gives away all the secrets he's a very very interesting filmmaker to hear talk and and describe his route into these movies um but yes he was brought on to do this rewrite which then led to him being given the director's chair for mission impossible rogue nation now christopher mccrory at this time had not done very many movies as a director he very famously rose to fame as the writer of The Usual Suspects. Ah! Which is where you will have known him from. That was in 1995. And five years later, he wrote and directed his debut movie as a director, The Way of the Gun, which starred Ryan Felipe and... I can't remember the other actor. I really like it. It's a kind of very small, like, crime drama movie and it's appealing but it's also clear that it's somebody finding their feet um he then went on to write uh, and produce valkyrie which was uh, a movie i think the first time he worked with tom cruise uh and then he didn't actually direct again until 2012 when he was the director of jack reacher 
the film with Tom Cruise, which is really good, but Jack Reacher fans are kind of like, no, Tom Cruise is too short to be Jack Reacher. Um, and I get it. It's a great action movie that just <laughs> happens to have a character called Jack Reacher in it. It's really good. It's not as good as the TV series that we had from Amazon, but it is good. And that was the movie, and that was a success, and therefore that then kind of gave him a bit of cachet back to to do some more directing. But he, he didn't direct... Uh, anything else he was the writer on jack the giant slayer and then edge of tomorrow again with tom cruise and then uh mission impossible rogue nation was his sort of third gig as a director so he's still kind of finding his feet as someone working in visuals and not just words he's always been an exceptional script writer and and a, a very particular writer with a very particular style and a very particular voice but as a director he was still i feel like finding his feet so rogue nation kind of takes the same team that were assembled in the previous film, which is the first time Mission Impossible has done that. Luther, as played by uh, Ving Rhames, has been in every single movie, but every single other member of the IMF has been different up until Rogue Nation, where they continue on with the, the, the cast brought in as part of Ghost Protocol. So Jeremy Renner returns as William Brandt, Simon Pegg returns as Benji. Oh, that's a, okay, Simon Pegg was in um, MI3, but he returns again. Uh, Alec Baldwin returns. And you, you've got a sort of a, a, a group of people who are known to the audience. So you can kind of drop them in to a new mission straight away. And they do this in absolutely spectacular style, where Tom Cruise very famously clings to the side of an aeroplane as it takes off when they are trying to prevent terrorists from pinching some nerve gas in Belarus. Can we just say, actually, on this, so I've seen that stunt. I know that stunt. The fact that it's right at the start of the film, I think, is is stunning but watching it and knowing that it's real the way that they've framed it it's really easy to think that cgi and i think they've actually done themselves a bit of a disservice that it looks like cgi but actually go and if you if you haven't seen it already go and see like some of the behind the scenes stuff about it because the idea of strapping Tom Cruise to the side of a plane while it's taking off. I think he had to wear special contact lenses because they basically went like protective contact lenses because there's so much stuff flying over a plane when it's taken off at 300 miles an hour that they basically had to try and protect him. It's one of those things that I think it actually works better in the behind-the-scenes stuff than it does in the actual film. I would disagree. I feel this This looks... I absolutely disagree. I don't think this looks fake at all. Maybe I knew it too well. Maybe it was too well-known. I think you've seen it, but no, I you, you watch it, and it, I don't know, it, there's something about the way that the camera is on an angle that you've seen from planes taking off before, particularly if you've watched any kind of onboard footage of a jet taking off, where they don't take off like a passenger airliner does with a lovely smooth 22-degree slope. They just aim it at the sky, gun the throttles and go. And this has <laughs> very much that feel. And, you know, it just the way mm. the way his jacket flaps in the wind and the way his legs just kind of flail about, it looks real. And he did it eight times. <laughs> which is wow. absolutely bonkers. But yes, it opens with this absolutely incredible stunt, which you've all have seen. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you'll have seen this. Tom Cruise clinging to the side of an Airbus A400. And then it gets into the meat of the plot where the bad guy basically fools Hunt into going to receive a mission, which turns out to not be a mission. He gets gassed, gassed uh, and turned unconscious and captured by the bad guys who are called the Syndicate. And in response, the uh, director, Alan Hunley, convinces the Senate to dissolve and assimilate the IMF into the CIA because the IMF are basically just a bunch of <laughs> hoorays running around <laughs> on a very massive gap year. They're just sort of running around, destroying stuff and, and saving the world, but in a very destructive way. See our mention of the Kremlin being levelled. <laughs> Ethan Hunt ends up escaping a torture, uh, uh, hit the torture chamber uh, and escaping the syndicate with the aid of a disavowed MI6 agent, called Ilsa Faust, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Hunt only has one lead, a blonde man in glasses that Ilsa identifies as another ex-MI6 agent known as Solomon Lane. And all sorts of madness ensues. But the joy of this, I think, is it is it's more 
streamlined than Ghost Protocol. This to me feels like it goes from place to place to place and you're you are absolutely certain about the motivations of everyone involved. It has yep. two or three absolutely standout action scenes that go toe-to-toe with that opening with the Tom Cruise clinging to the Airbus. There is a scene at the opera um, which is a feat of editing. I don't know if it won. Oh, yes. I don't know if it won best editing, but it is. It the, basically the opera is Turandot, which you will know from um, the what is it Euro nineteen ninety Ness and Dorma song. It's that one. Ness and Dorma. Yes. yes. Um, but it's which actually I noticed part of the score later on picks up. It does. Like, Ness and Dorma keeps sort of popping up through his score, which is I think is Michael. Giacomo? It's not Giacomo? Michael Giacchino on this one. Michael Giacchino did Ghost Nation. Uh, sorry. Um, Ghost Protocol, because he likes working with Brad Bird. But this is this score was done by Joe Kramer, who's right. worked with Christopher McQuarrie on Jack Reacher and The Way of the Gun. So it's sort of a, a, um, someone he knows already. But yes, you're right. They pick up the they pick that up in cues. But the whole of that opera sequence where Ethan Hunt and Benji are trying to stop someone from being assassinated. Meanwhile, there's this mysterious Ilsa Faust in an absolutely stunning dress, wandering around carrying a, um, a gun, who is possibly going to assassinate somebody and they're like do do we stop her or do we stop the other bad guy it's it is a feat of editing it is beautifully made and there's such a good the relationship between ethan hunt and ilsa faust is very it's very obviously they're two halves of the same coin one of them works for the americans one of the works for the u the 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 uk but they work so well together. Rebecca Ferguson is so good in this as as a sort of somebody who's playing every side and not really revealing whose side she's really, really on. And and she and Cruz have excellent on-screen chemistry and makes uh, make that relationship really work without them ever falling into bed or even kissing or anything like that. It is it is played through looks and what's unspoken as well as what is spoken. It's brilliant, but. The the highlight for this for me is a sort of a long running thing where basically they have to go and dive into a magic thing where some computers are kept underwater because <laughs> of reasons and Ethan Hunt has to hold his breath for yeah. a very long time to go and re- retrieve a magic card that holds some magic data on it and he gets <laughs> double crossed by Ilsa and she steals it after he's you know he's got it he he nearly drowns but he's got the card and then she steals it and races off on a motorcycle and Ethan Hunt wakes up from near death and almost immediately switches into I must pursue her mode uh, and they he and Benji grab an F80 M3 in a rather attractive color with carbon brakes um, I hope you noticed <laughs> And they race off after her. This is the content that people come to us for. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is the thing, though. It is. It's this is the movie where I look back and go, you know what? Between this and my friend Chris having had one in a really lovely blue, which I think is San Marino blue, it makes me go back and look at the the F eighty M three in a completely new light. Because I mean, okay, this one gets mashed to pieces and so on, but it looks really good, and it's got the gold calipers that tell you it's got carbon ceramic brakes. But anyway, this is. Tom Cruise, not only, hey, I can cling to planes and, hey, I can hold my breath for six minutes. This is, oh, and by the way, I'm also a really good stunt driver because yes. he's he's driving what is clearly a rigged car with a, you know, it, it's going to have a, um, a fly-off handbrake and so on. But he's doing all these amazing stunts where he's actually the one driving the car, doing J-turns, handbraking round into alleyways, putting this BMW M3 through its paces. It's a really great scene. Um, he's chasing mm. Ilsa, who's on this motorcycle, and I thoroughly and enjoyed this. Well. And acting, doing all... This is the thing with him doing these kinds of things. He has to act while he's doing it. Um, meanwhile, Simon Pegg is just there clinging on for dear life, wearing a sort of hysterical look of fear, enjoyment, and um, I, I don't know what. It's more Simon Pegg than Benji, I think, in in this movie. <laughs> sort of, I'm glad I'm here, but I'm also terrified that it's all going to end very soon. There's a, a notable scene, which I think I said to you, where the M3 is uh, jumped down a, a flight of stairs, and midway mm. in the flight of stairs, it changes wheels magically from the gorgeous five-spoke M3 uh, standard wheels to a set of st- things from a 318i that have a much um, higher sidewall <laughs> and uh, chunkier tyres on there and it bounces down the stairs on those and then magically switches back to the lovely 20-inch rims, which is a thing we've seen before. We've seen this in um, 
Need for Speed did it. Whenever you jump a car, it's always a different car that's on crappier wheels and no one seems to think we won't notice. But it's so obvious. And as soon as you've seen it, you can't not see it. Yeah. But the rest of this is awesome and has just such a killer. That Not only is the car chase a cool, well-staged Car, um, you know, well-driven, well-acted car chase, but it has a really amusing end to it as well, where they meet up yes. with with Luther and Brand, who are driving around in an old white Land Rover Defender. I th- what I think, what's also, what's also just pure Mission Impossible at this point, is that it goes from a car chase, and the car chase is great. I, there's behind-the-scenes footage again, and there's Tom Cruise getting into this M3 that has a very discreet roll cage below the window height. I don't know how much of the driving he actually did, but clearly he's got some skills. But after the car chase, he then jumps on a motorbike and goes chasing. And I just think any time you have Tom Cruise on a motorbike, hair and clothes flapping in the wind, a long shot at golden hour of clearly just him heaving this bike. And if you look in the credits, you can see where they've got... um, I can't remember what they're called now, but you know, like there's, they've got those rigs. So they, they put the bike on, they take the wheels off, they put the bike on a trailer and you can lean the bike, but you kind of never see below the headlight yeah. level. And then you've got Tom Cruise actually riding a bike and acting, no helmet. Yeah, getting his knee down. The thing with it, it's the high speed of it all. And it is, again, they, they're showing you in camera Tom Cruise is riding this motorcycle. Now, Tom Cruise rides motorcycles in a lot of movies because he's a good motorcycle rider and he loves motorcycles. But this is this didn't feel like, hey, I'm riding this because I'm showing off and aren't I awesome? This felt, this is absolutely <laughs> like, I will get my person, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll get my mark. I'm going to get that thing back if I die doing it. Mm. It's really, it's it's amazing. It's beautifully filmed, but it is proper high stake stuff. And the, the, so the, the M3 car chase is almost played a teeny bit for laughs in places. Whereas this kind of mm. then drops the laughs and it's just, it looks, it's incredible. And it's, it feels high speed. Lots of stuff, motorcycle chases, car chases don't feel quick enough. This feels fast and dangerous. I mean, motorcycles going around corners really fast is terrifying anyway. And, you know, I think there's a point where he low sides off the bike. Um, mm. But, you know, it's, it's bonkers and this this for me is where they made the filmmaking for the mission impossible movies all about doing as much of it in camera as possible with tom cruise and making it as visceral as possible and putting you there so it's unmistakable that this is being done for real for your viewing enjoyment um and you know you haven't seen fallout yet fallout takes this a step no. further. Uh, and if you're commenting about Tom Cruise being a good stunt driver in this movie, wait till you see what he does in Fallout and what <laughs> car he's doing it in. I will say, I think, of all the ones I've seen thus far, there's two things about this. One is, if you've never seen any of the Mission Impossible films or you've only seen the first one, if you've only seen the second one, I think you can absolutely pick up Rogue Nation you can. as a standalone film. And I think you would enjoy it. I think I think you're right. I think it... it absolutely just sort of builds and builds and builds i think the the relationship between the characters feels more mature and i think particularly with this the one standout for a couple of reasons was simon pegg because i think he's got a bigger role and i'm trying to think of um i'm trying to think of a similar character that is kind of the kind of the technical sidekick but also the sort of the comedic relief. He's what Spider-Man calls the guy in the chair that who, who's there to aid our hero, but he's different in that mm. he's also in the field, which is one of the things I like about Mission Impossible is all the people, they're not just... They're not always just on the end of a computer. So Luther can sometimes end up just being on the end of a computer, tapping away in a, in a van or in a hotel room, but quite often they are yeah. there on, you know, at the top of a tower, or hanging out in a in in a in a in a server room with the bad guys trying to hack into their network or something like that. You know, they're they're not just remote; they're involved, and quite often they end up with shit going wrong, having to grab a gun and go out and solve things themselves. That's a, a joy of it. It's a team thing. It's not always, you know, Ether mm. Hunt is going to get nowhere without the team of people helping him to do that. And I love team movies. It's why I love the Oceans movies, because it's a team yes. thing. And this is the same the same joy of, of seeing how each one of them brings something different to it. 
but really you're here for the, the 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 mad stunts and the car chases and you know if you don't come away going oh, how much f80 m3s now <laughs> then you know you're a better person than i because i'm i'm wanting to go in after this podcast and go looking on auto trader for one but um yes it's it's a really this is just a great movie it's not you don't have to love cars yes. you don't have to love um tom cruise you watch this movie because it is a bloody great movie it's a great action movie and like chris says and it's a really good point to to, to make you don't have to have seen any of the other mission impossible movies really they kind of yep. give you the characters up front you get a thrill for knowing the backstory but you don't need it that is less so for the the following films you do kind of need to know what's come before so in fallout and then the upcoming um two movies they're filming back to back i think you will need to know what's happened before uh, but this again was a big success this was and similarly budgeted around 150 million made nearly 700 million and was incredibly well reviewed everybody reviewed this very very highly it did um, great business for a Tom Cruise movie at the time. This is pre Tom uh, Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> and it paved the way for Christopher Quarry, who said at the end of this that he wouldn't do another Mission Impossible movie because they're hard to make. Um, but he did <laughs> oh, end God, up. I can imagine. He did end up returning for Mission Impossible Fallout, which I will go out on a limb and say is even better than this. Wow. In terms of the filmmaking, in terms of the stunts, it's just, it's so good. And we will review that in a future episode of the pod. But for now, I'm going to encourage you all to go and watch both of these movies. But if you only watch one, make it Rogue Nation. Uh, and then if you Absolutely. fancy digging into the makings of and the wares and the Y4s, then you can catch up with Christopher McQuarrie on the Empire spoiler specials. They are also worth listening to. But it, it's just a great movie with great cars in it. And the BMWs, you know, this this gets you going. BMWs have made, even though everyone was a bit like, oh, they're not, you know, the M cars are no longer naturally aspirated, and oh, they've got bigger and they've got fatter. They're still great cars. It's only recently where they've ruined it all by making them look like walruses. Let, let's right. There is one. There is one car that is a BMW, which, if I'm right makes me wonder so a lot of these cars you look at and you think there's a reason why they picked that car for that person for that scene to do that thing like the m3 you know if you're gonna do stunt driving you want an m3 no question there's one scene where ethan hunt turns up in i think what is possibly a six series cabrio and i thought did they just have that hanging around the back of the factory was there a like a, a hertz lot nearby that just happened to have a six series and that was all they had at the time this will be bmw going i know you've got the m3 but we'd also quite like to sell a few of these too so could you just slot that in as well and i think one of the things that's been mentioned on on these endless makings of that um macquarie's done is that you need partners to make movies like this he is open and honest about yes there's some BMW product placement in this. And there's other product placement. I can't recall exactly what they are, but I'm sure there's, you know, there'll be laptops by Sony and, you know, beer by Heineken. I know that's James Bond, but you know what I mean. That, that's Bond, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is open and honest and said, you you need partners to make these movies. You need somebody, you know, buying however many M3s, that might be two million quid on your budget. And if you can get a deal where BMW will give you to them for half price, then great, you've saved yourself a million quid that you can go and spend on something else that makes the movie better. And that's his attitude is, yeah, you know, you might feel a bit like, oh, this is product placement, it's being rammed down my throat. But hey, it works. We all want an FATM3. Let's move on to uh, what Henry Catchball has been up to since we last podded. Uh, so there's been a lot. So there's a couple of things on Carfection that I wanted to highlight. One is Andreas Preuninger talking around the new GT3 RS he, Andreas, gets wheeled out for these things and quite rightly that he should because one of the, the great things with this video is that Henry doesn't talk a lot in it. <laughs> that's not, that's no slight on, yeah, that's no slight on Henry, but he just kind of guides, guides the conversation, but this is AP in full flow. It really is. It's just stand back and let the man show off his new baby. One other thing that I did come across, which was a collaboration with a Triple Zero magazine, which was the Porsche 992 Turbo S being the streetcar class winner at this year's Pikes Peak. And 
it is it's it's interesting I, I think pike's peak is one of those things which i don't think there's really an equivalent of anywhere else in the world where you can take a stock car put a roll cage in it and go and compete against open wheel cars prototypes all sorts of stuff one thing that I did love with this, because it's been done in conjunction with Triple uh, O magazine, is they wanted something to put over the car. They wanted a wrap, of course. And what they ended up doing was using um, a 30-page feature that Dickie Meaden wrote and Andy Morgan photographed of the original 930 Turbo. And they they basically took... So if you've ever seen a magazine when it's being published when it's being printed, sorry, the pages are done on these big sheets and they've got registration marks where you cut them, they've got these colour sample bars and they've basically wrapped the whole car in what looks like a kind of um, pre-press, like, um, test print of, of, of these articles. But you can, like, you can go onto the rear quarter panel and read Dickie Meaden's thoughts on the 930 Turbo before it kind of, this 992 launches off the line. And Pike's Peak is kind of interesting and magical, and it's always it's always good to watch those things. Um, so yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting style. I don't know where it came from. I don't know because it's not a usual car affection piece, but it is interesting to see somebody who I think was either a second or third generation driver talk about what the nine nine two Turbo S can do on I think Cup tires, Cup two tires. I think he actually beat a modified Tesla up the hill. Shows how rubbish Teslas are. Rubbish, I tell you. Um, sorry, that's being mean. It shows. It just shows how bonkers the new 911 Turbo S is. And it is absolutely crazy, crazy fast. Okay, that's what Henry and, Car- and Carfection have been up to. Uh, what about your pick of the week show in a channel? So, my show... Video, is, rather. Uh, video. First. <laughs> I don't know why we've got show in a channel. It's my, video. My YouTube video. Yeah. My YouTube video this episode might not seem like the most suitable for us, but bear with me. It's from a channel called Mr. Who's the Boss, who currently has over 11 million subscribers, very glossy production values. Um, He does a lot of videos where he's sort of talking about tech. He's talking about things like tech over time. He will buy a group of things and display them. And what he did was was buy brand new inbox every playstation from the very first rectangular one through the two the three the four and the five the reason why i'm talking about it is that not only does he talk about the consoles he talks about the spec he talks about uh, the resolution that they output at he uses to demonstrate the advancement from one to the other gran turismo so seeing the very first gran turismo and within minutes, you've gone through a whole evolution to Gran, Turis- uh, Gran Turismo 7 on the PS5 is just shows how far the concept has come. It's it's a great watch. And if you are anywhere near Manchester for in the UK for some period of time, they currently have a exhibition, a playable exhibition of retro computer games including next to each other, I think it's the first and the seventh Gran Turismo. So you can literally play Gran Turismo 1, shuffle across to to the right into another chair and play Gran Turismo 7. And you can experience this yourself. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm taking my son there in a, in a month's time. So I'm going to go and do that because I think I have played every single Gran Turismo. I don't have every PlayStation, but I have played every single Gran Turismo. So kind of seeing that going from one to the next to the next to the next will actually be quite fascinating. So I'm going to check this video out. I think you sent it to me today and I just haven't had time to look at it, but it does sound interesting. Um, what have you got for a channel? So my channel, because we like to find these small up and coming channels that nobody's heard about is a channel called Throttle House, which, as we record this, I think has over 2 million subscribers (laughs) because we're absolutely finger on the pulse. Um, The reason that I I came across this channel was that they did a... um, They did a video with the Mercedes-Benz 6x6 G-Wagon, the Brabus version, 
which is $2 million of just indulgent nonsense versus somebody has built what they call the Mega Raptor 6x6, which looks like somebody's built an enormous Raptor in their shed and then stuck another axle on the back of it. But the thing is, so this is a Canadian channel with a Canadian and English guy presenting and they are really, really good. They have really good chemistry. They approach things in a very interesting way. I think it absolutely stands on the shoulders of Top Gear, of course, but it does so in what feels like a very authentic way. It feels very um, buddy-ish, and it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like there's an imbalance in the presenters. There's a good chemistry, and it's one of those where you sort of just start watching them and then you watch another one you watch another one you watch another one and yeah they're very engaging very much worth a watch what are your picks for this episode well i think we probably both agree that my video pick is the pick of the month uh this is a video from haggerty and it's part of their icons series with jason camisa uh, and this is the ford Bronco Raptor meets the Jeep Wrangler, Mercedes G-Wagon, and the Land Rover Defender. This is another in the series of absolutely stunning videos coming from Jason Camisa and his director, Anthony Esposito, and the whole of the Haggerty Icons team. This is astonishing work. This, when I shared it with um, with you and with Matt on, on our little signal group, mm. I said that this is the best quality automotive content other than Top Gear at its peak. It's so beautifully made. It is so cleverly scripted. It is so brilliantly shot. And it's just... It's so good that it's free. Um, it, it's so bonkers. It, 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 the car in it is bonkers. And then, you know, the, the way they use it to demonstrate how crazy the, the the Ford Bronco Raptor is, the what the things they do by driving through drive-throughs feel very top gear, but it's done in a in an authentic US way. It's not like they're trying to be Jeremy Clarkson. This is one of my favorite things about Jason Camisa. He has a very unique voice and he is you know he's just as hot at scripting, choosing the right phrases and the right comparisons, but none of it sounds like this does not feel like it's influenced by Top Gear. Maybe in the visual style of, you know, let's make something very visually appealing. Yep. But it does, it, it has its own style that has evolved from, obviously they've seen what can be done with cars and how you make an engaging um, video. This is a group test, but it's an absolutely bonkers group test with a bonkers car done in such a, an extraordinarily high quality way that, you know, you just can't fail to love it. I am not the target customer for any of these cars, but particularly not this. This is a very American thing. Uh, the Ford Bronco Raptor is about the size of a house and and probably does two to the gallon um, and is six tons of get-out-my-way hippie. But it's extraordinarily entertaining to watch. I, I just cannot recommend watching this video enough. If you watch one thing from this podcast, not even Rogue Nation, watch this thing, this video on the Ford Bronco Raptor. It's, it's 20, 20 minutes long and it's just pure genius, all of it. Um, they have this wonderful thing where they pause and allow Jason Camisa to walk into like the, the video that's been paused, which I've always thought is a movie thing that is really expensive to do, which involves, you know, green screen and CG and motion tracking cameras. They do this a lot in the Icon series where a car will like complete a drag race and then he'll walk onto set as they've paused the car as it crosses the line and he'll walk round it. It's so cleverly done. I love it. Um, and my channel is, this is a bit mainstream, but I, I given how the story of WRC has has gone this year i think it's worth checking in if you haven't watched rallying for a while go and check out the red bull rallying channel wrc in 2022 has been some of the most amazing rallying you're going to see there is a 21 year old hotshot by the name of cali rovenpera who is taking the established rally stars to school he is destroying them in his toyota gazoo racing wrc hybrid car I don't think it'll rally one cast now. I'm not 100% up to the nomenclature. But, you know, he's he's winning rallies when he shouldn't win rallies. He's winning rallies by miles. He's having problems where, you know, something's he's on the wrong tyres and loses 20 seconds and then in one stage makes up that 20 seconds and then some. 
and he's doing it to some of the fastest drivers who have ever driven rally cars. And Rebel's rallying channel has got lots of little clips to kind of get you up to speed what happened on the Ypres rally, the rally Belgium, what happened in the rally Croatia. Um, little clips on on the drivers, on the rallies, on the types of surfaces they're rallying on. So if you've not really followed WRC for a while, if you fell out of love with it in the 90s or maybe the 2000s, or even the 2010s, go back and watch now because these these new hybrid rally cars are as bonkers almost as the, the, the Group B monsters. And they're being driven with absolute commitment by all the drivers, particularly Thierry Neuville and um, Robin Perra, I think, are as flat out as Colin McRae ever was, if not more so in some respects. Uh, so <laughs> I've been kind of just dipping into this i did for a while subscribe to uh, the wrc plus service where you can get on boards and um you can follow the rally along live but unfortunately i always forget when things these things are on and end up catching the red bull coverage on the red bull app or on the red bull website so i'm um, i haven't done that for a while but the red bull coverage is a good way of getting yourself back into it but as soon as you've got into that you'll probably want to find some of the people who are posting clips from the side of the road because the red bull i angles are always a bit conservative and they're not they don't sell the drama as well as some lunatics standing by the side of the road with an iphone just you know being (laughs) whipped past by one of these rally cars at 120 miles an hour on the lock stops and that sells the the craziness and the commitment more than i think the red bull stuff does but if you're getting back into it the red bull channel is really worth a look Um, and there's some good stuff on there just kind of bring you up to speed with the state of modern rallying so i'm highly going to recommend that um and that brings us to the end of another episode of the automovie podcast um we hope you've enjoyed it if you have, please leave a rating and a particularly a nice comment on your podcast repository of choice. That does help for us to reach more people. Um, hit us up at AutoMoviePod on Twitter or comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com if you want to do it the old-fashioned way with the email. And uh, just tell your friends. Tell your friends about the podcast, get more people listening, and we will um, make more episodes for you. We will, as we keep promising, try and get these on more of a regular basis now that we're rolling into the autumn season and the temperature isn't quite so bonkers and people aren't on holiday because they haven't got any money. Um, With that, I think we're all off to go and drift a silver F80 M3 around the streets of Marrakesh and then quickly stop to change the wheels before we drive down the stairs. (laughs) 